0: Now have your attention, please. Customers should expect extended delays in crowded conditions on trains and platforms, especially during peak periods. Thank you for your patience and support as we continue to improve the Metrorail system.
1: From WAMU 88.5 in Washington, this is Metro
0: Apocalypse. The DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Crisis in leadership. Crisis in safety. Crisis in funding.
2: Metro's months-long maintenance blitz safe track is now underway with severe service reductions on the orange and silver lines.
0: This is ridiculous! When is a train gonna come?
2: I'm Martin DeCaro. And I'm Martin Ostermule.
1: Also known as Martin A, in the newsroom where we have more Martins than you can throw an arcing insulator at.
2: Come on, man. So, we've been waiting for months for this. It's finally time for Safe Track. It's the year-long maintenance program that's gonna affect thousands of riders on all lines throughout the system. Now, to get a sense of how bad things really are on the first day of Safe Track, we're heading out to Northern Virginia. We
1: open our second podcast of the Metro Apocalypse on the platform at Ballston Station. We are in the middle of morning rush hour. Ballston, you might say, is the epicenter of maintenance surge number one. It's one of two stations involved in a continuous single tracking that'll affect service on the Orange and Silver Lines end-to-end for the next couple of weeks. fewer trains than normal are operating west of the single tracking area. 11,000 people board trains here on a typical weekday here at Boston Station, but remember, by the time trains do get here, they're already full because you have thousands of trips taken per hour during morning rush hour at all those stations on the western ends of the Orange and Silver Line. So far, this has gone very smoothly. Metro was concerned. That it could be a chaotic rush hour, the first rush hour the safe track maintenance splits. But so far so good. We're gonna to talk to commuters, see how they're coping as we head on into DC with them. All civilized
0: trains this side of the platform based line train to New Carlton. It's on this side of the platform. my name is Philip Cosnet. I'm a
1: Foreign Service Officer with the Department of State. Okay, so what did the State Department tell you all about this and how many days you could telework? Maybe you can't telework.
0: Uh, It's difficult for me to telework because my job involves working with classified information and a lot of face-to-face meetings. Some of my colleagues are able to do that more. So you want to share some of that
1: classified information with us now? Yeah, no problem. (laughs) So how much did you pay attention to all this in the news over the last couple of weeks and were you concerned that you might be squeezed
0: in on on a train? Uh, I pay close attention to it. I'm not, so long as the trains run, I'm not too worried about how crowded they are. Frankly, uh, you know, I've lived in Japan, where, as you may know, people get literally pushed onto trains. I've, I've lived in lots of places where, you know, a delay in getting to work in the morning is the least of your problems. I'm not too worried about that. I will say this: that I'm happy to see Metro finally taking some decisive action to deal with um, with the maintenance backlogs. I mean, this is tough; it's going to be painful, but it needs to get done.
1: So it's 10 after 8, uh, heart of morning rush hour, and this is probably the most crowded either of the platforms has gotten so far this morning. Uh, people are getting a little testy.
0: This is ridiculous. When is the train gonna come? When oh, the train comes, we are not gonna be able to get on. Hi, I'm good morning.
1: With WAMU Radio. My name
0: is Asia Green, and I'm going to McLean. I work at Capital One headquarters, and this is outrageous.
1: You're waiting for a Silver Line train outbound. Yes. So is there another way for you to get there tomorrow, or do you have to take the train?
0: No, I have to take the train. This is my daily commute. I take the metro.
1: Did you give yourself enough time this morning?
0: I did. I gave myself enough time. But unfortunately, not one train going to Willie Weston has arrived yet. We've been waiting for 15 minutes i Sarah Amato and I work um, in
2: financial services in Tysons. Um, I don't have a car, so I don't drive. I didn't consider taking a bus, but I'm thinking about it for the rest of the week.
1: So what do you think of this so far? It's a disaster. Really?
2: Yeah, so my friend here, um, she actually is going into D.C. and they directed her to the other side of the track when she got here. And then the train came on this side of the track, so she missed it and is waiting for another one.
1: So how much were you paying attention to the run-up to this and thinking about how you might change your commuting habits?
0: You know, I really didn't think it would be that bad, so I figured that we could just come and still get
2: to work all right, just a little bit slower. Um, did not really pay too much attention to it. I knew it was happening.
1: Yeah, but tomorrow you might try something different.
2: Yeah, I think I'm going to try to take the bus.
1: So. So we're on this really crowded train heading into downtown DC. It had a pretty good clip, actually. Surprisingly, we haven't stopped at many stations, although we are getting pushed in a little bit right now. And uh, most folks heading in probably aren't thinking too much about what actually is going on in the in the work area. So uh, we'll tell you, um, Metro is doing a wholesale reconstruction of you know original sections of railroad. Boston opened in 1979. Uh, that starts with railroad ties, wooden railroad ties that have been on the on the system for 35, 40 years, are being replaced. Also, the track foundation is going to be replaced, rebuilt, and uh, then after that, you go move on to rail and other aspects of the uh, of the system, both underground and in outdoor sections of track. So. Uh, for anyone who's uh, wondering why they're stuck on these packed trains, that's, that's the reason. All right, that was Life on the Platform, the first rush hour of Safe Track. And as we moved through Boston, we ran into Metro's general manager, Paul Wiedefeld, and we asked him what he was concerned about.
0: Sure. Well, obviously I'm concerned that people didn't heed the, the warnings. Um, again, you know, as you know, the major reduction in the level of service that we're gonna have, there's no way we could handle the, the normal volumes. So I'm hoping that people, and I know I've talked to a lot of customers already, they started their day much earlier, which is great They spread it out. Uh, that's fantastic. I've seen a lot of bicycling. Uh, a lot of the uh, buses you see are being well utilized. So anything that people can do to minimize the impact on the rail, because, really, what I'm trying to do is protect those people that don't have any other option. You know, we have, obviously, people in the community that just don't have any other option but the rail uh, for work, for, for, for healthy issues, whatever. Um, so we'll make sure that that's maintained.
1: What should people expect the differences to be between a continuous single tracking and a shutdown? Because the next maintenance surge will be a shutdown on the eastern side of these lines.
0: Yeah, no, that'll, that'll present a different set of challenges. Um, so this one we'll learn from today and take some of that to the next, to the next one. But a- actually each one of these will be different. They'll be unique in their, own, in their own way, just given the different travel behaviors. And obviously as you know, we have five shutdowns of, of stations. So we'll learn along the way. Some of those you can, c- can handle pretty smoothly and others will be more difficult there's not a one size fit all here at all, Martin. Um, but I think we just gotta make sure people understand that this is, you know, just because it may work smoothly one day, you know, you know, we can't it's just like a snowstorm. first day of the snowstorm people stay home. The next day we want everything to work smoothly, and guess what? The you know, the piles of snow are still there. So we will have continue to have issues uh, throughout this whole this stretch and as we move into each each of the searches. Okay, thanks you.
1: So, based on what we saw at Boston and on the trains going into Washington, it appeared that many commuters did heed the warnings, and Metro's numbers bear that out. They saw a 26% decrease in entries at stations west of Boston. Just to give you a couple of examples ridership at Vienna down 22%, Dunloring 30% down, West Falls Church a 44% drop, over on the Silver Line, the Tysons Corner station a 17% drop. So, enough. Commuters avoided the trains to make it livable and tolerable for the rest of them. So, what did you see during your commute this week? Join WAMU's Metro Apocalypse Facebook group and share your perspective, ask a question, discuss, commiserate, or you can email us at metro at WAMU.org. I'm Martin DeCaro. You were pretty excited when we rolled out this new podcast, weren't you? We're excited to offer Metropocalypse and other innovative new programs that speak to critical regional issues. But we need your support to keep doing so. Don't wait for the next Orange Line train before donating to support the WAMU Program Fund online at WAMU.org. Do your part to make great audio and great journalism happen. Thank you.
0: This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know
1: and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. You're listening to Metro Apocalypse. Every week on this podcast, we take your questions and pose them to the powerful, the influential, the people who make decisions that affect Metro and therefore your commute. This week on our Metro Apocalypse Facebook group, Barbara Weichbrecht had a question for DC Mayor Muriel
2: Bowser. And Barbara asked, what kind of long-term financial commitment is the district gonna make or has it made for Metro maintenance and improvement? The system can't be supported by fares alone, nor should it be. It's a public good like utilities, roads, and high-speed data
1: networks. So long-term financial commitment, that's probably going to be a dedicated funding source, a.k.a. a tax, like a regional sales tax that would take the support of all three major jurisdictions, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. And in the transit industry, that's the standard. A city will have a sales tax or some other kind of tax that will directly fund its transit system. So I put Barbara's question to Mayor Bowser.
0: Well, the district has already been committed to a dedicated funding stream.
1: So do you support, then, a, a regional sales tax? I, I do. What kind of conversations, if any, have you had with Governor Hogan and Governor McAuliffe about that?
0: Um, we're focused on safety right now.
1: So nothing about long-term revenue stream, dedicated revenue stream? We're yet?
0: focused on how to get the system safe.
1: When do you think it might be okay to, to pursue that issue of getting a, a dedicated revenue it's stream? It's
0: always okay to pursue it. We're having that discussion in, internal to the district right now.
1: So, Martin Ostrmule, uh you cover district politics uh, more than I do. You could tell the mayor was willing to at least say she supports the regional sales tax, but wasn't willing to talk about it any more than
2: that. Yeah, I mean, I think she understands the political realities here. The district invests a lot of money in transportation. I mean, there's the millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars that they're willing to put into the streetcar system, not only what's on H Street, but also expanding it all the way to Georgetown. So they definitely have money that they want to spend on making transit better because they know it's good for the city and it's good for the people who live in the city. But they also know they're not going to do it alone. And Virginia seems to be the tough sell. And this is, of course, something that you know better than I do is the regional dynamics and getting the region to agree on anything when it comes to Metro is got to be difficult.
1: Yeah, you have the Metro Board of Directors, which ostensibly does uh, represent each of the eight city and county jurisdictions. But you also have a state house in Richmond. You have a state house in Annapolis. You have the D.C. Council, which apparently does uh, support the idea of a regional sales tax. But you have these other political players who are not necessarily on board with that. Uh, D.C. does give Metro hundreds of millions of dollars a year for its operating costs, for its capital budget. But we're talking about a sustainable funding source that Metro could use for its future expansion. If we were going to build another tunnel under the Potomac, at Roslyn, that's billions of dollars that currently is
2: unfunded right now. And, and just for some context here, the district has raised its sales tax in the past. It's right now five point seven five percent. They've increased it to six when uh, when the when times are rough during the recession. They increased it to get some more money in for the government. So they have the flexibility to to do it. They've done it in the past. I know that it's been done in fits and starts in the other jurisdictions. But to get everybody on board to do it all at once is going to be difficult. And then you have to decide how big is the increase going to be and is everybody going to be on board with it. And this does raise the question
1: of how important is money when it comes to Metro's past failures and future success. Money, of course, is part of the equation here. But right now, Metro lacks credibility to go to Capitol Hill, lacks credibility to go to Richmond to say we need tons more money. And until Its operations, its reliability improves, that's going to be an even harder sell.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to take a look at the region's nighttime economy and what happens now that late-night service is gone. I'm Martin Ostermiel. And I'm Martin DeCaro. Stay with us.
1: You're listening to Metro Apocalypse, and Metro's safe track maintenance program is underway. Feel the pain. A year of single tracking, segment shutdowns, and of course the end of late night service. I'm Martin DeCaro with Martin Ostermule. We cover transportation and development for WAMU-885. And Martin, you've been covering this aspect of the Safe Track program: no more midnight to 3 a.m. service. Bars, restaurants, clubs, all feeling the pain there. What are you finding out?
2: There's been late night service on Metro since 1999. That was the year that they they decided to extend the hours on Fridays and Saturdays. So instead of closing the system at midnight, they would close it at 1 a.m. And then in the mid-2000s, they extended it to 3 a.m. Lots of folks I've been speaking to said that this new renaissance that there is in the district in terms of bars and restaurants and this kind of feeling of, a, of vibrancy, Comes from the fact that there is a way for people to get around late at night. So a bar closes at 2 o'clock in the morning, you can get yourself home safely on the train. Now, late night service is going away, so there's plenty of folks I spoke to who are concerned that late night service goes away, the vibrancy of the city's nightlife also goes away.
1: When GM Paul Wiedefeld made this decision, he did not consult the jurisdictions first. He made the decision and basically said, okay, I want your feedback, and maybe we'll change some things, but probably not. I know Mayor Bowser has pushed back against this plan a little bit, but I don't think Metro's going to change it.
2: No, and for a long time, actually, Metro officials generally said out loud that the problem with late night services is it cuts down on the amount of time they can do maintenance on the rails. I mean, back in 2007, then general manager John Cato advocated getting rid of late night service because he said, we just don't have enough time to work on the system to maintain it. Now, fast forward, we're years past that. And that's exactly what Paul Wiedefeld is saying. And sure, Mayor Bowser has said, you know, late night service is key to the vibrancy of the district's nightlife. But I think she recognizes that she has no power to really change Wiedefeld's decision on this one. So with the end of late night service, plenty of people are going to be thinking, this is how it affects me and my night my night out. I can't go out late anymore because the train won't be running when I get out of the bar. But it also affects service workers. And I talked to Jaime Contreras. He's the head of SCIU 32BJ. It's a union that represents 17,000 workers. And these are the sorts of workers that clean up buildings. They're security guards. And they work late hours. And this is what he had to say.
0: You know, you got to remember a lot of these workers have to work two and three jobs. Uh, A lot of these workers don't live near uh, their jobs. So some of them come from Maryland, some of them come from Virginia. Uh, And
1: it's already hard enough for them to be able to afford transportation as it is. So service workers, hourly wage workers, they're going to really feel the pinch here. They live further away from their jobs than people who have... More money to spend on, say, Ubers
2: and Lyfts and other ways to get around. Right, exactly. I mean, it's no shock. You look at real estate prices, it's more expensive to live closer to a metro station, and there's more nightlife around metro stations. The sorts of folks who might clean a building, they might work at bars as barbacks, they might be servers, bartenders, they're, they're probably not going to be the sorts of folks living above a metro station. They may be living further out. And what Contreras told me is the majority of his members live in the outer reaches of the district and then also out in Maryland and Virginia in parts that are, they may be metro accessible, but it's a much longer metro ride. And if you're taking a cab or you're jumping an Uber, it's much more expensive.
1: Let's talk about Uber now. I interviewed Megan Joyce, who's uh, Uber's East Coast general manager, about whether they feel they'll have enough drivers, number one, to meet the demand, and whether they're going to end surge pricing or cap, really cap surge pricing during Safe Track, And the answer is no. And this is how Megan answered that question.
2: You know, we find that surge pricing is a really helpful tool in ensuring reliability. It means that those times when many of us would, would rather be at home in bed, like a rainy Saturday night at 2 a.m., the drivers have an incentive to get out on the road when they need it.
1: So when Metro's late night service was at its peak, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., 5,000 riders per hour, 15,000 people per late night,
2: but over the years it has diminished to 2,500 people per hour. Or 7,500 per late night. So that tells you that people were already migrating away from using the train for late night service. They were opting for alternatives like Uber or cabs. And when we spoke to Metro on Monday morning, they said they didn't have any reports of people complaining about the lack of late night service.
1: We're gonna wrap it up right here. Thank you for listening to Metro Apocalypse Episode Two. We'd love your feedback or questions, and have you joined us on our Metro Apocalypse Facebook page yet? That's where you can get Metro updates, share a story, discuss issues with your fellow riders, or just cry about how bad the commute was. You can also
2: email us Metro at wamu.org. Music on today's podcast came to us from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack Project. It's an initiative to bring local music to WAMU's airwaves. you heard tracks by Kaz and the Day Laborers, Damu the Fudge Monk and Raw Poetic, and Double O Genesis. You can find more information about them on the Metropocalypse website, WAMU.org slash Metro. Metropocalypse
1: is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney, John Ogolnick, Joe Warminski, and Chris Chester. Our engineer on the tracks and in the studio has been Timmy Olmstead. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. For all of our friends and co-workers braving the orange and silver lines, good luck out there this week. I'm Martin DeCaro.
2: And I'm Martin Ostermule. Thanks for listening.